we can uh, head over to Jonah because we're going to continue our sermon series going on. If you haven't caught the first two sermons, we finished up chapter one now, uh, and we've seen that what happened is that God had a prophet by the name of Jonah who he sent a commission to. He, he spoke to his prophet who he had spoken to before. Jonah was a guy who God was using back in the, in the seven to eight hundreds of, of the, the uh, ancient Israel before Jesus, right? 750 years before Jesus. And, and so he was there preaching, but he was a, a prophet of blessing, a prophet of honor. He would, he would go around and, and preach and God would use his, uh, uh, as he spoke to uh, uh, King Jeroboam II, his, his job was to preach and then God would bless the nation and extend their borders and bring in riches and Jonah loved that job. But God then called him to do a very unfavorable task. He called him to run, uh, to, to arise, go and preach to the Ninevites who are the, at that point uh, somewhat of a capital city of the Assyrians, a godless, barbaric, cruel nation who, is, who is a, had history with Israel. They were war enemies of Israel. So it's very likely uh, Jonah being from the same town as Jesus in, in Nazareth, that area of Zebulun, uh, he had lived in that northern area which was so often attacked by the Assyrians. So it's very likely to think that Jonah had family members, maybe an uncle, maybe a grandfather, father who had been killed by the Assyrians when their, when their town was laid to waste as it often was. And yet God called Jonah to get up, go and preach to those enemies because God had heard their troubles. We see in chapter 4, the reason why Jonah didn't want to do that was not only because they were scary, not only because they were bigger than him and stronger than him and had blades that had his, his name written on it, not only was it that, but it was mainly because, as he tells us over in chapter 4, he believes that if he goes and speaks the word, God would save that generation of Assyrians instead of crushing them like Sodom and Gomorrah. He would bless their repentance and then he would... Uh, fulfill his words through the prophets of Hosea and Amos, and then use Assyria to destroy and punish Israel. Jonah knew that what God had in the works for Assyria was very likely mercy, forgiveness, revival. And he knew by a word of the prophets that what God had in store for his own people was wrath and judgment and condemnation. God was not going to be as gracious to the Israelites as he is going to be to the Ninevites. Jonah ran from that. He didn't want to have any part of that. Seeing a revival among the people who were going to be his enemies. He was too much of a nationalist. So he runs. And as we saw last week, he, gets caught, he goes down to an ocean port. Uh, he jumps in a boat, goes out to sea, tries to just have a cruise, get everything off of his mind. But God chases him with a storm. He's eventually thrown overboard and at the bottom as he sinks down in the ocean. Verse 17, we saw this in chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now that sounds like a proper good ending and close to the story of Jonah. As a warning to everybody. God tells you to do something. He's called you, blessed you, chosen you, saved you. Then he calls you to do something. Do it or he'll find you, kill you in some terrible manner. He might even just get you eaten by a fish. That seems like a pretty reasonable Old Testament story. 
Why, we might ask, why is there a chapter 2? As you turn the page, you realize the story continues. This guy's been judged, cast out, killed in a storm, Why, and, and then eaten by a fish. Why is there any more story here? Why is there anything left of his, uh, his narrative? And the reason that the book of Jonah is told this way is so that the Israelites of Jonah's day, when, when this book was then written, but also so that we, going back and reading, might realize that whatever your past failures rebellions or sins, there is always a Jonah chapter 2 for you. We need to realize that though Jonah had run in the opposite direction, sinned and blasphemed against the holy God, and though he had come under God's discipline and punishment, God was not finished with him. Because God doesn't ever become finished with his children. There are, in God's armies, no expendable soldiers. In God's family, there are no children that are just so disobedient, so annoying that he just wipes them out and kicks them to the curb and enjoys the family road trip without them. He doesn't do that. God seeks in a, in a uh, relentless passion to pursue his children to restoration. That's going to be the theme of today's sermon and the next sermon that we preach out of chapter 2 is going to be that God relentlessly pursues his children to restoration. God seeking to restore Jonah isn't very apparent from that last verse of chapter 1, that God sent a fish to eat him up. It would have, you know, maybe you just think it's God's last ditch way to really put the last nail in the coffin. Jonah's dying in the ocean, but even worse, I'm going to have him eaten by some disgusting fish so that his body rots in that belly. But that, in fact, was a salvation. I'm going to read chapter 2 for us. I ask you to follow along in your own Bible, and then we're going to go through what we can learn from Jonah chapter 2. <clears throat> Reads like this from the ESV. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And the be- out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away, away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deeps surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down into the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. May God bless that to us as we seek to understand and and bring some application and uh, and exposition out of it. Well, first question, I know everybody thinks it, everybody wants to know, when you say you're preaching on Jonah, everybody's first question is, what's your view of the great fish? One question is, is it a whale or is it a big fish? Don't know, don't care. It says great fish, meaning big fish, not a tremendous fish, but a very very large fish. That's the word there, translated into great. Whatever it was, some enormous sea-dwelling animal opened its mouth and swallowed Jonah. And then the other question comes, 
Is it a metaphor? Is it a parable? Is it some kind of fable or, 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 or biblical myth? Because obviously that can't happen. That's, that's impossible. We're scientists in our generation. We understand you can't stay alive in the belly of a fish for three days. And, and I'm going to spend absolutely zero time trying to reason with you as to why I think science, in fact, can prove that somebody can stay alive in the belly of a fish. Because that doesn't matter. We worship a God who, with one word, created the universe. It's absolutely no stretch of his arm to keep a guy alive in the belly of a fish. It's called a miracle. We, we understand that. We believe. We're not, uh, we're not rationalists here. Uh, I hope you're not either. We don't just believe that, that if something seems irrational to us and illogical to us, then it can't be true. Right? Of course, there are some things as God speaks to us through Scripture, there will be some things that shock us, surprise us, things that we wouldn't come to conclusions about that God does. And at that point, we bend our knee. We say, you're God, I'm man. You're creator, I'm created. You're redeemer, I'm redeemed. You're speaking, I will listen. God sent a massive fish. It gulped up Jonah and he stayed alive in it for three days and three nights. But uh, that doesn't mean that we can't draw uh, lessons out of it. But the most important reality of this is that uh, the reason we know that this actually happened, uh, and it's not just sort of a, 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 a metaphorical story of a guy, sort of like we've all been there, swallowed by a fish. You know, what's the fish in your life? Uh, the, you know, the reason we know that this is in fact history is because Jesus calls it history. Over in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, you can uh, go and read that later, but he says when he's arguing with his detractors, he tells them the sign that will be given to you is the sign of Jonah, just as he was, was uh, buried in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man will be buried in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus wasn't metaphorically killed and buried. He was truly, really historically killed and buried. But more so, Jesus says, speaking of the Ninevites who, spoiler alert, chapter 3, Jonah goes and preaches and, and the whole generation gets saved. <clears throat> Jesus speaks of that and affirms that that really happened. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against you because you've got a better preacher than Jonah and you're still not repenting. So to Jesus, this is a historical fact. This actually happened. And if your view of the Old Testament or anything at all is ever different to Jesus, you're wrong, plain and simple. So moving on. <clears throat> Some people do actually interestingly believe that, that, that as Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so I will be in the belly of the earth. Some people actually believe, and it's quite understandable as you read through chapter 2 here, they believe that he went into the ocean, died, the tomb of, of, the, of the fish, it, the fish came and ate him, sort of acted like a graveyard for three days, then vomited him up alive onto a beach as, as a resurrection. And I'm not against that because it's too miraculous. Again, that's fine. Uh, but, but rather, I think that, that something, so, something so particularly miraculous would be more clearly laid out to us. Rather, it tells us that he's praying from the belly of the fish. They have their reasons to disagree with me. I'm not going to go into all of it, but I think that he stayed alive in the belly. And what we have is, <coughs> um, is, is just at this point, let me, let me help those who, who struggle sort of science, faith, Bible, scientists, how, where do we go with this? We, we don't believe in this, uh, this, this old uh, vision that, that the pagans had of gods, which was called the God of the gaps is what it's been called. Right? The, we have these huge gaps in our understanding 
Some big yellow fiery ball lifts up over the horizon. We have a gap in our understanding of how that works. So we'll put a God in that gap. We'll say, well, God must lift this fiery ball up over the horizon and put out those sparkly things at nighttime and move this enormous changing shape moon around us. We don't know how it works, so we'll put God in that little gap. That's not our view of, of God or of the world around us at all. Because what you realize happens is that as your scientific knowledge increases, as it should, God wants us to learn, that gap gets smaller and smaller. We realize it's gravity, it's, it's, the, it's the laws of thermodynamics. It's, we, we start in, uh, filling that gap with science and our God becomes tiny. In fact, pretty useless. There's no more gap in, in understanding how gravity works. So, so where's your God? So the scientists would say. And, and the simple response is you should think about science and God is that, is that God is the God of science. We don't just put God in the gap. We put God behind everything. So we'll say, not just like the old ignorant pagan, God lifted the sun up in our view over the horizon today, right? He carried, he put earth in orbit around the sun. He gave us our seasons and our times and, our, and, 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 and the change of seasons, our climate. That was God. God gave you life this morning. And yet then a scientist would come up and say, no, it's not actually that. It's gravity, and it's the, it's the gravitational pull that, that, raise, that, that spins Earth around the sun, and, the, and it's, it's this reason and that reason that brings the sun up, and it's actually the oxygenation of your tissues which brings you life. It's not God at all. And we as Christians say, yeah, that's, that's God. That's God doing those things. God is not just, as again I said, in the gaps. He's behind everything. The, the gravity, that's his design. That's how he does things. That's his means to achieve what he's doing. So that when God, when you awake and the doctor tells you you're living because your tissues are well perfused with oxygenated blood, you say, thank the Lord, that, though we know how it works, is his doing. He's sovereign in all things. And so when we see a miracle happened, it's simply that God sort of skipped a step. He didn't use some kind of scientific method to keep Jonah alive. He just sustained his life while he was swimming in disgusting smelling gastric juices on an enormous fish. But that's enough of that. Let's, let's keep on going. What we're going to see in the remainder of chapter two is how God pursues his children because he is a good father. <clears throat> Jonah, uh, let me explain that Jonah is writing this down or, or it, he's writing it down later, later than when he was in the fish, after he's returned from Nineveh. This happens a few years in the, in the future, but he's writing down what he prayed in the belly. But, but even while he's praying in the belly, he's sort of quoting himself from moments earlier when he was sinking in the ocean. So there's a few layers to this. Don't get confused with it, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll explain it as we go. <clears throat> Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish is his desperate cry to God from the pit of death. When he was thrown, you need to realize that Jonah had resigned himself to death. He had run. He knows the consequence of disobeying the holy God, Yahweh. He had understood that uh, I can save the sailors, I can spare them from being killed with me, but I, as far as I am concerned, I need to die. God is here to destroy me, throw me in the ocean. It's done with it. My mission is done with. The commission of God is gone. The call of God on my life is done. I'm going to go die. Throw me in the ocean. That was his mindset. Uh, at least we should expect that that's what it would have been. And so he had given up running and he gave in to death. 
He had received the call, but he'd been unfaithful and was giving up on it all. And I want you to see this, this realization that as he is sinking, he believes he's dying. Verse 3, he says, and he's speaking to the Lord. This is looking back on his sinking. He understands that it was all God's doing. He says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. In other words, I was helpless. When it's God who's in the ring with you, you're always getting knocked out. And here's Jonah realizing, I I couldn't overpower this. These were your waves doing to me what you wanted. Well, look over in verse 5. He continues, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. So here's going deep down in the Mediterranean Ocean. Weeds were wrapped around my head. So he's getting very close to the ocean floor here. He calls it, I was at the roots of the mountains. That, that, that's an interesting way to think of it. The other, the other side of the mountain, while it's, it's high above, uh, above the water, as it goes down, it doesn't actually stop at sea level. It keeps on going. And in the very gutter of the, the mountain, there is the, the roots of the mountains. And Paul, uh, Paul, Jonah finds himself there. He says that, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He believes that he is going to an eternal dwelling place of death. And, and, and he will have a lot more to say later about the hope that, that later comes. But you need to realize he thinks he's dying. He thinks it's just that he's dying. He has given up. He, he needed to learn a lesson, though. Because Jonah, like us, does not belong to himself. Jonah had not called himself to the ministry. So he could not uncall himself. Jonah was not his own Lord, so he could not release himself from service. He had not consecrated himself. Only God had done that. So it was only God that was able to put, himself, put him back to common purposes. Jonah did not belong to himself. He was, he was a possession of God. He was not on his own mission. He was on God's mission. So he could not relieve himself of it. He was not his own judge. So he couldn't bring a charge against himself to forbid future service. Jonah had not qualified himself for ministry. God had done that. So he couldn't disqualify himself from ministry. Everything here needs to be, is is coming down to the point to help Jonah realize, I'm God, you're not Jonah. You're not even in charge of your own life. You're not in, in control of what is happening around you. This is God who is doing it. God is going to say over in, in verse 10, out of the lips of Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. There's one sovereign party here, and it's not Jonah. <clears throat> but how many of us are just like that? We are, we are very similar to Jonah, and this is why Jonah is written as it is, so that we would see this pattern in our own life. That we've received a call from God for service on our life. Now, now, if you're a Christian, you have a call for service on your life. And you don't have to wonder what it is, fast and pray about clarity about it. Jesus said it very clearly, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Your job is to find uh, your place of service in the Great Commission, which means going out and discipling every nation on earth. Win souls, bring them the gospel, bring them to the gospel and and teach them how to obey Jesus. That's every one of us, uh, every one of our responsibility. However, we need to figure out where exactly we fit into all of that. Where exactly God is calling us specifically. And in that, I'll use another sense of a call, 
that we have this conviction of something. Well, we have this innate or, or in our sense of a call, a, a passion over a certain place to go or, or a ministry to serve in. We have a, a calling of God on our hearts, which, because that's more subjective, we need to balance with Scripture, talk about it with our spiritual uh, authority. But we, we have individual calls. Friends, some of us are here tonight, and you have, through pursuing sin, through being faithless with the, God, with the call that God had given to you, or maybe by taking a completely different direction in the course of your life. You've decided that in the end of all of that, God is no longer able to use you. You are not pure enough. You're not holy enough. You're not useful enough to be used by God. Thinking yourself to be wise, you have in fact made yourself a fool. Somebody who can undo what only God has done. Many of us will try and use theological language to excuse ourselves from serving him. We're trying to reason out uh, why or really cover up what is truly cowardice and guilt that we've just failed to bring to the gospel of Jesus. Guilt and cowardice that we've failed to put at the foot of the cross, realize we're cleansed for it all and therefore fit for serving Jesus. <clears throat> Many of us assumed that when God called you in the Great Commission and maybe in, in an especial other calling that he's put on your life, you think that when he did that, he didn't know what future sins you would commit. He thought he was calling somebody better. He thought he called up a more equipped phone, uh, phone number. He thought somebody better was going to answer that call, but it was you. Friends, God called you with his eyes open. And at this point in Jonah's life, he, he's taught a very hard lesson. What, what Jonah needed to realize was this, was this enormous lesson and therefore it took an enormous lesson to teach it to him. He had to be taken to the very point of death so that he would listen. He had to be taken to the very point of breaking so that there he would cast his desperation on God. This is how God works. God's discipline, God's retraining of his children goes as hard and as long and as deep as our sin does. He's like a good surgeon. You've got a tumor in, in, in the deep of your belly. He's not just going to nick your skin, pretend that he's taken it out. He's going to put you to sleep and go deep with that blade to remove what has been deeply rooted. The reality is that God gives us no anesthetics. We feel every part of it. We feel not, not judgment and condemnation, but the hurt of God's fatherly discipline. So over in verse 2, Jonah realizes that he's, sorry, Jonah comes to this point of realization that he cannot run from God, not only because God's chasing him to kill him, but he's realized that God demands that I call out to him. Verse two, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and grace of all grace. He answered Jonah. He answered me out of the belly of Sheol. That's literally the place of the grave in Old Testament language. He, he's considering himself dead, and yet even there God hears him. I was from the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. Look at verse 4. He says, Then I said, I am driven away, for, uh, away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He was hit so hard by the hammer of God in this discipline that sparks of hope begin to fly. He got taken so far to the end of himself that he realizes that, on, that as all of the sand, all of the, the cobwebs, all of the rubble is cleared of his own self 
worthiness, he realizes he's standing on the rock of God's grace. And so he has hope here. He says, I will again look on God's holy temple. Look at what he says at the end of verse 6 here, into verse 7. Though, he, though the, the bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. This is what God finally taught Jonah. He had hope. He cried out. He was heard and he was saved at the very point of death. There is no distance. No matter how far one has gone, God is able to chase and willing to chase relentlessly his children to bring them back to the restored mission that he has called every one of us to accomplish. <clears throat> this prayer comes, sorry, the answer to this prayer comes in a very surprising way. Fashion. Remember, as far as the chronology goes, that prayer happens before the fish. He's sinking. The weeds are choking him. He's blacking out. He's praying with whatever energy he has left. And God answers his prayer with the belly of a fish. Maybe at that point, Jonah had concluded, all right, my last ditch effort of hope in God was very ill-based. And here God is reminding me to shut up and that he's finished listening to me. He's got me eaten by a fish. But in God's usual pattern, he has no pattern whatsoever. He sends this very surprising answer to his prayer. I will save you. I will deliver you. I will send to you a, a, a token of grace. Here it is, the belly of an enormous fish. Maybe even complete with some, some snacks floating around in the, in the juices with him. I don't know. I won't pretend to know. But there he is sloshing around and he needs to realize this, though it looks with the eyes of reason to be more judgment, with the eyes of faith, he had to realize this was salvation. Now, now you'll, you'll excuse me for being uh, too maybe spiritualistic as we apply this, uh, but, but, but each of us needs to realize that God, in, in so many ways, works this way in the lives of his children. This is a pattern. It won't ever look like a fish eating you, I hope, I think. But each one of us is surprised by God's grace as we cry out in desperation. What often looks to other people, to the eyes of our own reason, what often looks like judgment, in fact, God's salvation. Maybe there is in, in, the, in, in your life as you've been in sin, as you've, you've fled the call of God, as you've, you've not walked in obedience in lifestyle as God would call you to do. There has maybe been a, a lost job opportunity or, or, or a job that you're fired from or a broken relationship. Something has happened that has left you out in the open, cold. You've, you're losing something. You've missed something. God's taken something away. And you would be tempted to think this is God's curse punishment for my sin. But in fact, you need to realize this is a moment that God is taking you aside, clearing away the distractions, silencing the other voices to get you and him alone. And there, God wants you to cry out to him as Jonah cried and prayed in thankfulness from the belly of the fish. Israel as a nation learns this lesson. This is what's so ironic. The very thing that, was, that Jonah was so afraid to happen to Israel was coming. The destruction of their temple, taken as slaves, thrown into exile, and yet that was God's disciplining hand upon the nation. Not to wipe them out, but to teach them a lesson and bring them back 
stronger. It was also the reality with, with Paul that uh, he in his life had what, we don't know exactly what it was, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he tells us about the thorn in his flesh. And he ends up saying that, that though the Lord would never answer my prayer to take this pain, this difficulty and affliction away, he came to realize when I am weak, then I am strong. So he would say, for the, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Friend, you don't rely on Jesus more than when you feel your weakness. Therefore, you are at your strongest when you are in yourself the weakest, because at that moment, you will rely on God, your strength, all the more. Elijah had a similar example. I'm, I'm trying to show you that this is God's pattern of working with us. Uh, Elijah had the same thing. When, when he ran away from that prophetess, Jezebel, uh, who had the, the spirit of divination from the devil, and, and, and as he ran away from her, trying to uh, uh, save his own life, God isolated him, told him to get rid of his servant, told him to go 40 days journey into the heart of the desert, and there God met him, encouraged him, equipped him, and sent him him back on his mission. Spoiler alert, Jezebel dies and gets eaten by dogs. It's a great read. First Kings chapter 19. <clears throat> so you, if you feel that you've, you've wandered or you've been unfaithful, that you've walked away from God's calling on your life, that God commands you to obedience and you have walked away from that in a slack Christian witness and a slack Christian life, though, though I will do nothing to lessen the reality of that sin, the, the life of Jonah and the reason God puts this into our Bible is for you to realize God is not done with you if you are in Christ. He has begun a good work in you, not just to save you, but also use you, will bring it on to completion. You're not God's God's prototype, which, which he'll send off for review, and if it comes back lacking, he'll throw it to the garbage and start again. You are not, as Jonah came to realize, a replaceable cog in a machine. You are a child of God with a name graven into the wounds of Jesus that he got as he died for you. You have a face that he saw as he died for you. He was purchased you with his own precious blood, will not now discard you as if you were worthless. Not because of you, not because you're so dang fine and, and expensive and worthy, but because Christ has purchased you with something infinitely valuable. <clears throat> and so it is. This is God's way of, of removing the, the filth from us, in removing the dross from us. The easy way out. Let me, let me tell you this. Sometimes we think that we're going to be really humble. We're going to be really, uh, really holy and pietistic and just like, like God is. And, and I'm going to look at myself and we're actually going to take the easy way out, clothed in theological language. We say, I've sinned. I've been, I've been inexcusably uh, uh, faithless. I haven't lived right. And you know what? I just think God uses pure vessels. And he won't want to use me. And I'll, I'll give a poor witness. And, you know, my life has been like this. And so I'm going to resign myself over here to use, uselessness. Being idle until the return of the Lord. But friends, it actually takes greater faith. Greater Jesus-trusting, spirit-empowered, Bible-based, gospel-oriented faith to say, I have sinned 
It is inexcusable. I am guilty. I have fled from the one who loved me and called me in authority. And yet, Jesus died for me. This this sin that I've committed has been forgiven in the blood of Jesus. Friends, if that's the gospel that God wants you to take, wants you to carry to the nations or to your neighbors, then it's the gospel that needs you to learn in the hard lessons of your own sin. Those who can preach a powerful gospel are not those who just know it all by head knowledge. It's those who have learned that often trodden path of coming away from sin, bringing it to Jesus, and experiencing the power of his forgiveness. I remember there was a, uh, I, I once heard this story from a, from a man who was a, uh, he was a late, he was a builder, sorry, and he had this 19-year-old laborer who was working for him, um, uh, he, code word for useless, 19-year-old labor, just out of high school, right, young bloke, probably plays lots of Xbox. He was working for him, and he was this laborer. He was helping out build this hotel lobby that the builder had been commissioned to come and fix with his team of, you know, 20-something guys come in, fit it all out, uh, 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 renovate it all, and they just finished doing all of the, the, the plumbers had come in and done their part, and they filled the pool which they'd built, and all of this was happening. They signed off for the day and went home, and it was the laborer's job, you know where this is going, to switch off the tap, which was filling uh, some, some reservoir of water they needed for the next day. The guy didn't do it. He goes home and gets a, a call late, uh, the, early the next morning. Everybody has to rush to the job site. It's flooded. The first floor has just been flooded and has, and has uh, uh, worn through and broken down the whole uh, ceiling that they'd built and ruined the, the ground level lobby. And, and here was this laborer realizing that it was him. And so he writes out, responsibly so, he writes out his letter of resignation, folds it up, puts a mouth guard and a cup on and walks up to his boss and hands it over, you know, and tells him, I'll, um, I'll just show myself out. I'm so sorry. Um, <clears throat> uh, at, at the end of the day that they fixed, uh, spent fixing it all. And the builder looks at him and goes, you are not going anywhere. I just spent $150,000 training you to turn taps off. I'm not sending you anywhere else to take that lesson with you. So it is with God. Do we often think, look at all that I've done. Look at the mess I have made. I'll take my business elsewhere. Jesus says, I beg your pardon, friend. I bought you. I've just taken all of the, the sin that you had committed on the cross. I'm the one whose name has just been profaned. You think I'm going to let all of that happen and then let you walk away? I'm going to use you. Friend, it is never an excuse for your sin. Never hear me say that. That is not what spirit-born children of God hear when I say this. And yet it is the reality. After you have sinned and walked back to the cross of Christ and redevoted yourself to his calling and his mission, you are more useful than before that it all happened. You carry with you lessons that you never could have known about the grace of God from before. And in fact, there is fruitfulness that will come that could never have been achieved otherwise. I want to tell you a story. I promised you as we started out this series, I would tell you stories of missionaries throughout history. And I'm bringing you today to one of my favorites, though one of the most depressing. It was a, a man by the name of uh, David Brainerd. In the 1700s, he was, uh, he was a missionary to the, the native Indians in the newly colonized Americas. 
and he sort of lived up in the, um, in the northeast near New York, and it was there that he became quite a fruitful missionary among the Indians. But what you need to realize <clears throat> is that he had, he had quite, a, uh, quite a fumble in, in early on in his Christian life. He was a teenager. He was sort of, uh, if you're familiar with the Great Awakening that was going on through Jonathan Edwards' time, uh, he, uh, David Brainerd was a student at a theological college hoping to become a pastor at that time. And what had happened while there was all this awakening going on and people being born again, there was this, this tendency, it hasn't carried over to our day, you know, for the students to be disrespectful to the teachers in the college, in the, in the, in the universities. But they were doing it in quite a way. They were saying, all us students are being swept up in this revival. God's making us born again. But all these professors are all dead in their religion. They don't know the, the, the vitality of a true revived lifestyle. And so they, they made this rule at Yale College that if any student speaks of a proctor or a tutor, you know, the professors, speaks of them in a way as to suggest that they're unconverted, they will have to make a public confession and apology before the whole school. And if they do it again, they'll be expelled. Pretty harsh. David Brainerd, I shouldn't laugh, but I will. David Brainerd, has, there's this story. He's, uh, they've had this prayer meeting at college one night, and one of the guys who had prayed, a Mr. Whittlesey, he was one of those prayers who just goes on. He was dry. He was boring. Everybody got sick of it. And, and afterwards, in the hall, right, it was just him and one friend. David Brainerd and one friend, and his friend asked him, what do you think of Mr. Whittlesey's prayer, hey? <clears throat> to which David replied, and I, I, I apologize for my crude language here, but David said, I believe that that man has no more grace than a chair. Harsh language, right? That, that was the insult he handed. And down the hallway was a young person who had heard that and then took that story of, of what had been spoken, went and told another little gossip in the town, and the story went around that David was calling the tutors and the professors unsaved. And for that, he was kicked out of Yale College. And make no mistake, he had broken rules that he knew existed. He had sinned by slandering a brother in Christ, as far as he knew. He had sinned, and for that sin, he lost his theological education. And he could not ever be a pastor in the Americas because a new law had just been passed that unless you had a theological degree from Yale or Harvard or some other European uh, uh, university, you can't be a pastor here. And so he's just lost. He's been saved. He believes God wants him to be a pastor. He goes to theological college and then his whole future is lost in one dumb statement. But because of that, he moves east and he goes over to live with another man who, uh, by the name of Jed Jedediah Mills. And he lives there and, and he actually becomes, instead of being a, a normal preacher who gets trained in theological college, goes and lives in an affluent town in the Americas, because he had moved away, he got trained by those a lot less orthodox, those who were actually doing a lot of ministry to the Indians. And it was there that he first caught his heart and his passion for what he would often call these poor, lost Indians. Human sacrifices, tribal dancing, they're in darkness. They don't know Jesus, and people aren't taking them the gospel. It was there because of his sin that he learned this passion for the Indians, and he ended up going, and over a period of only about three to four years, the whole time he had tuberculosis, often coughing up blood as he's riding a horse overnight in the rain, sleeping on the dirt, as long as he can get to the next tribe to preach Jesus Christ. He did all of this, and as he went, he wrote a journal. 
Eventually, after serving for about four, three or four years, he had had quite a, a failure of a ministry up until the last year, where God poured out by his sovereign spirit a revival among uh, the Indians in a place called Cross Week Sun. And there, this Indian tribe almost entirely came to Christ, moved away from their pagan land, and moved and set up shop in another area. These people in New Jersey became born again. They were, they were worshipping Jesus Christ, and all of their lives turned around, and David died of tuberculosis at the ripe old age of 29. But it was not so much what happened in his life for David Brainerd that bore so much fruit. I want to focus tonight on what happened after his life. I told you before, everywhere he went, he wrote a journal. And somebody, Jonathan Edwards actually took that journal and published it to everybody. And I want to show you that there's this, there's this spiritual lineage throughout the modern missionary age because of the work that God did through David Brainerd. He'd written this amazingly touching uh, 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 journal about how much he suffered, but all of his prayers were written down for the lost nations to hear about Jesus. And after reading that, there was a man in England uh, named Henry Martin who read that journal and decided himself to go and be a missionary. He went to India and Persia in the 1800s. There was another man by the name of William Carey. He was one of the main uh, quintessential uh, uh, powerful missionaries to go to India and translate the Bible into multiple languages. He went because he had read the journal of David Brainerd. There was another one. You might have heard of him, Adoniram Judson, who we so love to talk about here. He became a missionary in part because he read this journal and the sufferings and the prayers and the faith of this depressed and dying David Brainerd. Also, David Livingston, who went to Africa and took the gospel there, he went there because, and he was inspired on in his work from Scotland to Africa because he had read and continued reading the life and journal of David Brainerd. It also inspired Robert Murray McShane, who was a Scottish pastor. There was another man by the name of, uh, of Robert Morrison, who went to China, and Jim Elliott, who we spoke about last week, who went to the Orca tribe in, uh, in South America and died there. All of these people went to their missionary labors because they read David Brainerd. And none of that would have happened if David Brainerd didn't sin against his teacher by, by slandering him. And so you might want to look back and go, well, I guess it was a good thing that he said that against his teacher. Maybe I'll have some things to say at school on Monday. They're my teachers. No, don't ever make excuse for sin. But like Jonah, no. Whatever has happened in the past, God will use that in his plan to bring himself glory. Don't make excuses. Get back on mission. It was reading the diary of Robert Murray McShane where he said the journal of, of David Brainerd was so heavenly and amazing. I, I read that journal. I went back and read Murray McShane just this week and I saw a little note that I'd made for myself in the margins. And I said, then I must also read David Brainerd. I look back and I realize that that was the point in my own life. This may not mean much to many, but for me it was powerful to realize I, I, I was coming to, to, to read McShane and then Brain at the time that I was giving up any sense of call of God on my life to be a preacher. 
It was reading David Brainerd that sustained and empowered me. Now, some of you think that's a bad thing. Wish that didn't happen. Why do you become a preacher? But others, hopefully, are encouraged. The life of David Brainerd bore so much fruit because of what had happened. And it all started with that little sin, just like Jonah. But I want to ask tonight as we wrap up, why is it possible that Jonah's sin could become the very thing that God's used to teach him a lesson, us a lesson, and all those who read the Word of God? What is it that means that David Brainerd's sinful slander could be the cause of thousands of Indian souls saved and millions around the world who later read his works? Why could our sin, your sin, your past, present, and future sin, how can it possibly be used for good if God's a holy God who can't touch sin? And friend, the answer is Jesus Christ. Because he took all that was damnable, all that was condemned, all that was sick and filthy about your sin, Jesus took on the cross and died for it. So that all that was, all that was a punishment is gone now. And all that is left is an action that God can weave into his sovereign plan for your life to take the gospel to your neighbors, your family, this, this whole country, and the nations that don't know him yet. Because Jesus took our sin, God can use even that in his plan to bring us into fruitfulness. Friends, I, I want to remind you of that tonight and ask, have you, have you had every one of your past sins forgiven? And do you have the confidence to look forward into the future and know every one of my future sins will be forgiven? They're already forgiven in the death of Jesus Christ. Do you have that confidence? And if not, I, 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 I tell you, you don't have biblical faith. Faith that is born by the Spirit trusts Jesus Christ that I am forgiven. And you can walk in that joy. You can walk, not that happiness, not that bright, beautiful, uh, 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 shiny life. David Brandon didn't live that life. Jonah didn't live that life. We don't live that life. But we live a life of knowing I am saved, loved, and redeemed. Friends, I want to pray for us now. I want you to consider, has God called you not just in the Great Commission, but specifically, has he put a call on your life to go somewhere, to another culture, another nation, an unreached people group? He's put a call on your life into certain ministries here that you might serve in, that you've fled from, that God would now call you back to be re-consecrated. I want you to consider where you are in light of the cross. Are you forgiven? Are your sins forgiven? And are you saved in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you would speak to us this, this biographical tale of, of Jonah and the belly of the fish so that out of it we can learn lessons about your grace and about how you pursue your children relentlessly to restoration. God, I pray that each one of us would do real heart work with you, that we would truly bring ourselves before you and ask in all openness and earnestness and honesty, Lord, have you called me in a way that I've run from that in a way that I've not responded correctly? Is there somewhere you would send me? Is there something you would have me do now? God, I pray that you would utilize all of us, restore each of us, because we have assurance of forgiven sin in Jesus Christ. I pray that anyone who is here, listening online, who will listen later even, who, who, who is outside of Christ, who the, their sins are not forgiven and they themselves are not justified in the gospel, would you please speak grace to them? Would you give them your grace? Would you, would you raise them up from the spiritual grave? Give them new life in your son. We pray this, Lord, in desperation and in weakness, but trusting your strength. And everybody said, amen, amen.
This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.